So we're in our, our final uh, message in this series through the book of James and we come again to a hard-hitting passage. A key issue that uh, James addresses in his letter is the implications of the gospel in the, on the fact that in this world there is a disparity between rich and poor. Those with not enough to live on and those with much more than we need. The kingdom of God is the reverse of the world though, isn't it? We saw in 1 verse 19 the call for the lowly to see their situation as exaltation and for the rich to see their situation as humiliation. It's neither a sin to be wealthy nor is it virtuous to be poor. What makes wealth Worldly wealth, a moral issue, is what we do with our wealth or with our poverty. And Christians have wrestled with this for centuries. Some have applied directly to themselves. Jesus called to that rich young man to sell everything he had and give it to the poor and go and follow Jesus, such as St. Nicholas of Patara in the 4th century, who gave up everything. And he became the basis for Father Christmas, for Santa. Others, like uh, Paulinus of Nola, who was also in the 4th century, he invested his wealth so that he may have ongoing resources to continue to help the poor. Others, sadly, Christians have considered wealth simply something to be kept for themselves and enjoyed for themselves. And the people that James is addressing in this final chapter, in the first part, fall into that third category. So he tells the rich how to boast in their humiliation. These people have laid up treasure, which should make us think of Jesus' words. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's the problem, not how much treasure I have, but the fact that I treasure it. My and Jesus goes on from that passage to say, someone can't serve two masters. If my heart's set on laid up stuff, then it's not going to be set on God. See how he's, James speaks in the present tense. Their treasure has been destroyed. Your gold and silver have corroded. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Remember, James is writing to Christians who face persecution and have been scattered because of that. So those who were wealthy had to flee and they had to give up all of their worldly goods. They'd already experienced the loss of their treasure But now it seems that complacency had 
crept in, maybe once they've found somewhere safe and begun to settle down again. They were starting to find their security in stuff again when they should have known better. So James calls witnesses against them. Already he's called on Jesus himself by using those words and he shows that they're in direct violation of his teaching. He now calls on the law of Moses when he talks about the wages of the labourers. He's quoting or summarising here Deuteronomy 24.15 which says, You shall give him, your workers, his wages on the same day before the sun sets for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. See how he's quoting the law. And then he calls on the prophets. From Jeremiah chapter 12, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, he will not see our latter end. See the reference there at the end, he will not see our latter end. James picks up on that when he says, you have laid up wealth in the last days. These people think he will not see our latter end, but the Lord does. The Lord does see our latter end when all the laying up of our treasure will come to nothing and where we will come to nothing as long as treasure, not God, is at the centre of our affections. So, these people have contravened the teaching of Jesus, they've broken the law and they've gone against the word of the prophets whom Jesus fulfills. But it's in verse 6 that he really sticks the knife in and turns it. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now who is this righteous person? Well, it's not, it's not the poor people that they're oppressing. As we've, as I've just said, being poor doesn't bring about virtue. Someone isn't righteous just because they're oppressed or disadvantaged, contrary to many uh, contemporary narratives. Look at Acts 7.52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now this is the conclusion to Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. This is the speech that got him stoned and sparked the persecution 
that uh, James's readers were um, were victims of. Righteous one here in Stephen's speech and righteous person in James five six are the exact same phrase. See what James is saying. He's saying, you are just like the ones who persecute you, the ones who stoned Stephen. Greed isn't just breaking the teaching of Jesus and Moses and the prophets, it's actually betrayal and murder of Jesus himself, the one we profess to love and serve, the one who says we should be prepared to face the loss of everything for his sake. This isn't just a matter of social justice. Remember the, the story Jesus told of the sheep and the goats. Jesus will judge the people of all nations not on the basis of their involvement or not in social justice but for the way in which they treated his people. Here at the end, then they also will answer, those on his left, the goats, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly, I say to you, as long as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Who are the least of these that he's speaking of? Well, it's not someone who's small because they're poor. They're least because they're his disciples. He's talking about those who have become uh, like little children in order to enter the kingdom of God. Those who have made themselves least of all and become a servant to others so that they may be great in the kingdom of God. See, those who are on Jesus' left had betrayed and murdered Jesus, not because Jesus identifies particularly with the poor and the oppressed, but because Jesus identifies with his people. And he promises to bring the justice that his people cry out for, the justice that he taught his disciples to pray confidently for because they knew that God would bring the justice that they need and not delay. The the social justice gospel tells us that God is particularly inclined towards the poor. In fact, God is particularly inclined towards his people whom he chose, whom he redeemed in Christ. And it just so works out in this world that this world that hates Jesus, that those who identify with him often end up to be the poor and the oppressed. So how should we in Australia, we who live in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world in terms of worldly wealth, how should we respond to this word? I don't think there are simple or easy answers. Do we all give up our material possessions to the poor and go and live in the park in tents? Do we wisely steward and invest our wealth in order to be generous but 
assume that we will never be tempted by the lure of worldly wealth and comfort and the love of money. Well, as soon as we insist on one method or another, we start sliding into legalism because it again becomes about what we do. The solution must be not to try to work out with my wealth, but to ensure that my heart is set on Christ as my greatest treasure, to ensure that he is my all of my affections. That will give us the wisdom that we then need to handle our worldly wealth in a way that honours him. So that's how we who are wealthy are to boast in our humiliation. But next comes a word to the lowly brothers and sisters who were told to boast in their exaltation. And we should notice something here by its absence. See how there's no call here to stand up for their rights, to rise up and demand change for themselves. They're not told to protest against the inequality of the world or the mistreatment that they face, even by those who claim to be their brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, they're told to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now, that doesn't sit right with us, does it, in our age, in our culture of rights, where we're told Stand up for your rights. Being made in the image of God doesn't give us rights. It gives us responsibilities. The call to love our neighbour because we're made in the image of God isn't primarily because they have some intrinsic value that means they deserve what we uh, give them. It's because by being made in the image of God, we have a responsibility to accurately reflect God in the way of his love and his justice in the world. In a perfect world, which we're looking forward to in the new creation, no one will ever be concerned for their own rights because everyone will be fulfilling their responsibility to love one another. So, rather than personal rights, we're told to be patient until the coming of the Lord, which is another way of saying, leave the matter of justice to the Lord. Now, this term, the coming of the Lord, can be taken in the sense of two time frames. We probably might first think of it as referring to the day when Jesus will appear as the judge of the whole earth, when every single matter of injustice and inequality will be made right. The unrepentant will be judged. The righteous by faith will be vindicated. And as we wait for that day, it's okay and it's expected that we will, like those under the altar, in Revelation chapter 6, cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge 
and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. They're given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the Father's purpose has been fully met through the suffering of the church. White here symbolises the pure holiness and righteousness given by Christ, but it means more than that. White robes, especially in the book of Revelation, are priestly clothes. They mark out a people who have this vocation, this commission to be the means of God's blessing to the nations. So how wonderful are these two gifts given to the suffering saints? A vocation as a priestly people in which we're able to in the Sabbath rest It means all of our needs are met by our Heavenly Father and so we're free then to bring the gospel blessing of God to the world. That's the perfect recipe for hanging on long term in the face of suffering and hardship. To be patient for as long as it takes because the security of the new heavens and the new earth has been brought forward by the work of the Holy Spirit into our hearts as we know the love of the Father. But the second way that we can take this phrase, the coming of the Lord, is in the way that Jesus himself uses it, again in the book of Revelation, as he's speaking to the church in Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. These are the words of Jesus given to the first century churches about him coming to them within their own time frame, their own lifetime to bring justice for the church and upon the church. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see the church continually coming under the judgment of God because that's the sign that we are beloved children of the Father who constantly disciplines us. It's one of his ways of purifying the church which will become the spotless bride that he'll present to his son. So be patient and trust the Lord to bring about the justice that we need. The example of the farmer in verse 7 reminds us again of some of Jesus' teaching. The parable of the farmer who sowed seed and then sleeps and he rises day and night and the seed grows on its own without his help. Going to sleep is always an act of faith that God can continue to run the universe without my help. But of course in that parable the the farmer being patient doesn't mean he remains passive because when the harvest time comes he gets out his sickle and he does the work that he's called to do. So when we're disadvantaged we're called to live 
in the light of Christ's sovereign rule over creation and the certainty of the day when he will come to judge the living and the dead. For the poor and the oppressed amongst God's children, that's good news because that day will bring the day of vindication when they'll see how all of their suffering, all of our suffering has been used by the Father to make us more like Jesus. And for the rich and the privileged among God's children, which most of us or all of us actually fit into that category, it's also good news because finally all of the tantalising temptation of money, all of the battles of conscience and the shame of complacency that dulls and renders our faith ineffective because we have so much, that will all be burnt up in the refining fire. As we're patient then in the midst of suffering, we're told, above all, my brothers, do not swear. And James is quoting Jesus again from the Sermon on the Mount. And this is actually a commentary on the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When making covenants and business deals, people would invoke their gods as witnesses to the promises that they were making, agreeing to incur the wrath of their God if they did not keep their side of the bargain. To say, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, is saying the Lord will not have his name used as a bargaining tool to facilitate greed and personal gain. He won't be used as a means to prosperity or to secure business deals. He won't be drawn into our empty promises in which we pledge faithfulness to him if only he'll give us what we think we need. But more than this, that, that prohibition against using his name to swear an oath reflected something that made the Lord's people, the Jews, unique among all the nations. See, no other nation had ever had a God enter into covenant with them. To suggest that a God would covenant with humans would either mean that the God had lowered himself to the human level or beings up to the God's level. And pagan mythology is full of all these stories about crossing that divide between human and divine horribly wrong. So covenants and treaties were always kept between humans with the gods purely as witnesses. However, the Lord is the covenant God who has entered into covenant relationship with human beings. Noah, Abraham, Israel, David and culminating in the new covenant in Jesus the Son sealed in his own blood. Jesus is God descending to the level of human beings in order for us to our dignity as children of God. Patience, 
in the face of suffering means we trust God in all things. We look to God in all circumstances. When we suffer, we turn to him in prayerful, humble dependence. Verse 13. When things are going well, we're thankful for his good gifts and we sing praises. When we're sick, we turn to one another in the family of God for help. When we sin, we confess our sins to one another. When we wander, we count on one another to bring us back on track. We need to note that these things are commands, not suggestions. God isn't our big therapist in the sky. He offers some helpful ideas to improve our individual well-being or to increase our resilience. We are his holy people, called to live for his glory, to be lights in the world. So prayer when things are tough isn't merely a helpful thing, it is good, but it's also an act of obedience. And praise when times are good, likewise, is obedience. The the phrase, praise the Lord, most commonly appears throughout the scriptures as a command, not an exclamation. So when we use it as an exclamation when something good has happened, what we're actually doing is saying, give credit to God for this good thing that he's done. Calling the elders to pray for you when you're sick isn't a last resort for when things get desperate. The elders don't have any extra spiritual power or ability to heal. They're simply men who have been set aside by the church for the ministry of prayer and the word of God. And so in that sense, they're coming on behalf of the whole church to pray on behalf of everyone. So next time you're sick, the command isn't to the elders to find you and come and pray for you. The command is to you to call on us and ask us to come and pray. Now we need to be careful about making verse 15 a proof text for healing. Some take this verse and claim that it's guaranteed for all Christians who have the faith that they will be healed. That view, of course, means that any Christian who's not healed of their sickness doesn't have enough faith and their lack of healing is their fault. And too many people have had their faith shipwrecked by that teaching. You may be aware in the news at the moment, 14 people in Toowoomba are on trial for murder because they were all complicit in withholding medical treatment from a young girl because they believed God would heal her. And now they're saying they believe God will bring her back from the dead. It's not what James is saying at all. Notice that the elders are to anoint this sick person with oil. Now this isn't the holy oil used to anoint priests and kings. That that word is the word chrisma, from which we get our word Christ. Christ means the anointed one. Rather, it's, it's another word he uses. 
It's a word that's only ever used in other places about the treatment of the sick and the embalming of the dead. It's oil that was infused with herbs and spices. It had aromatic properties and we know archaeologically that this oil actually did have antiseptic, antibiotic properties. Oils were part of the conventional medicine of the day. They were also very expensive. As we know, when the disciples complained, when Mary anointed Jesus' feet with oil just before his death. So, are to come with both practical and spiritual help. Praying over them for their healing, but also doing what the first Christians did from the very beginning, enabling those who had means who could afford to buy the oils to share with those without, who couldn't afford. Trusting God is able to heal miraculously and so we pray. And also trusting God that he's provided in his creation things that can be used to bring healing and health. Notice also how the language around this prayer for the sick has a salvation focus rather than a wellness focus. See how it's a prayer of faith. Remember, James has made it clear that faith isn't merely the act of believing, but also the content of the gospel which we believe. So a prayer of faith isn't one in which we believe really, really, really hard and somehow make it happen by our faith. It is trusting in the crucified and risen Jesus as we pray. Or as we put it when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. It's a prayer of faith. Secondly, we're told that this prayer of faith, this gospel-shaped prayer, will save the sick person, which is a, a word that's used much more widely than just physical healing. Sometimes it is but it also speaks of being saved spiritually, even when someone is nearly dead physically. Thirdly, we're told that the Lord will raise him up. And that's a term that can refer to getting better from sickness, like when Jesus told people to stand up and walk. But it also points forward to our resurrection hope that even when our bodies have returned to the dust of the grave, we will be raised up by Jesus on the last day. And we're told that they will be forgiven of their sins, which is a wonderful word of assurance to someone who may be wondering whether their sickness is God's punishment for something they've done. What a wonderful thing to bring to that person the assurance, your sins are forgiven in Christ. God, the Father, has a good purpose in your suffering. He's not punishing you. Now these, these words of James should make us think again of Jesus, of the paralysed man who was lowered through the roof to be healed by Jesus. Jesus caused a scandal because the first thing he said was, Son, 
your sins are forgiven. This man's greatest need, even though he was paralysed physically, was to have his sins forgiven. Whether he could walk or not in this life, in the here and now, didn't matter. Because he would know that he would be able to walk in the kingdom of God. But in order to be in the kingdom of God, he needed to know that his sins were forgiven. Then Jesus healed him primarily as the sign that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, not that he had authority to heal. All of Jesus' healing miracles pointed people to see his identity as the Son of Man who was bringing in the kingdom of God and bringing about the new creation, causing people to turn in faith to him, not to get their own personal miracle, but to know by faith that they will be welcomed into the kingdom by this Jesus who can forgive their sins. So if we pray for someone who's sick and God chooses to heal miraculously, we can rejoice in his good gifts. Remembering that that healing is simply a reminder of the good things to come in the new creation. If he chooses not to heal, we can have a confidence because of the gospel that salvation and resurrection and forgiveness are guaranteed for anyone who has faith in Jesus and no sickness, not even death itself, will rob us of that assurance. So verses 16 and 18 are also not a proof text for physical healing because it's still in this context of the forgiveness of sins. Um, yeah, confess your, sorry, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The word for heal means make whole and it can apply both to the physical and the spiritual. See how Peter uses this word, heal, when he quotes from Isaiah 53. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. That's the quote there from Isaiah 53. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The healing that Jesus' wounds bring is the healing from sin so that we might live to righteousness. In other words, if as someone that God has justified them through faith in Christ. That's what it means to live to righteousness. And see how this is the power of prayer. That it's the prayer of a righteous person, a justified person. Not someone who's righteous because of what they've done, but they're righteous, they know by faith that they are forgiven. So we can pray confidently for our brothers or sisters, whether it's praying for their health, whether it's praying for them because they've come and confessed their sins to us, because we know that righteousness of Christ and we come straight into the holy place, straight up to the throne room of the Father through Jesus our High Priest.
And so Jesus, uh, James's final statement in his letter, see, is also about salvation, bringing back a sinner from his wandering. These last words feel like a very abrupt ending. There's no farewell, there's no blessing like there is in every other New Testament letter. And that's because James wants to drive this final point home. He wants it to be the last thing that we hear. It's really a saying through his letter. There is no greater thing, no deeper action of love that we can do for someone than to speak the word of the gospel and to call them to trust in Jesus. Addressing their physical and emotional needs might reduce, might stop suffering in this life, but bringing people into the kingdom of God through the gospel may not stop suffering in this life, may make suffering worse in this life, but it will certainly end all suffering in the next. Well, we've really only skimmed the surface of the book of James. But if there's one thing you remember, the key really to, uh, to the book of James is the command that he gave back in 1 verse 22. Where is it? It's not up there. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We've heard some very strong commands in this book. It's confronted our hypocrisy, our foolishness, our selfish desires. The commands have exposed our wrong motives, our lukewarmness of our faith, our tendency to show favouritism towards those whom the world privileges instead of those whom God calls his children. We're called to hear those commands and not just be hearers but doers. Our response to the word, our obedience, must be one, though, that is grounded and empowered by grace, not our self-righteous efforts. Remember, while James only mentions Jesus by name twice in his letter, it is that gospel, as he describes it, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, that's the basis for everything that he says. Just as Paul says to Titus, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Knowing God's grace in Jesus means you can leave this place every Sunday or Friday confident that just as you have been a hearer of the word, the Spirit will empower you to go out and be a doer to God's glory. Let's pray.